0: This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Telemedicine Part 1, Express Care.
1: Hi all, and welcome back. So we recently published our series on the past, present, and future of emergency medicine. And we want to continue in that vein by talking about telemedicine, the future of medicine.
2: Well, Sarah, is it really the future or is it now? Okay, that's fair. True.
1: The use of telemedicine has exploded with COVID. Truly, COVID was a giant leap forward for virtual care. This pandemic forced everyone to rethink how to
2: survive, but also how to reach our patients where they are. That is very true. And to that end, I spoke with Dr. Josh Elder. Josh is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis, and he is the medical director of express care at UC Davis Health. Josh spearheaded our departmental efforts to expand our emergency medicine resources to the virtual world. Josh defines telemedicine as simply using a virtual platform to connect with a patient. So I asked Josh to explain in broad strokes how our own UC Davis telemedicine program works.
0: So I should say that we have a very big telemedicine umbrella here at UC Davis, There's many other people that fit into this space. For example, the Center for Health and Technology, CHT, and and there's different telemedicine medical directors. Um, I'm one of them. And so I sit in the house of telemedicine, which is express care. And again, this is consumer-based telemedicine. So if you wanna see your own primary care doc in a clinic visit and you reach out as a scheduled appointment, that goes through a different service. This service is you have your phone, and you wanna see someone, and you either don't have a primary care doc or you just need to see someone right now. So in a lot of ways, it's almost like a virtual emergency department. People show up when they need to, and there's no limit on how many can. We have the workforce to meet patients when they need to see us. This year, you know, it's suffice to say, COVID has, I think, converted even the skeptical that this is a incredibly important infrastructure to have in place now, and I think likely forevermore.
2: Sarah, have you ever used telemedicine for yourself or for your family? No, actually, I never have. Well, I got to at the beginning of COVID. I had a little bit of a post-nasal drip and a little cough associated with it at the beginning of COVID. So I wanted to be tested, of course. And I used telemedicine to connect with my primary care provider. And it was absolutely brilliant. I didn't have to leave my home except to go for that drive-up test, that brain biopsy that they call a PCR Nasal swab. (laughs) And it was way better than driving to the office, parking, signing in. Well, you know what a visit is like. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And this summer, our express care team saw a teen, and his father was eager to share his story.
3: Last night, my oldest son, typical of, of boys, told me that he had fallen 10 days ago on an outstretched arm and had pain in his thumb for the last week and a half. Couldn't put on his shoes or put on his pants without pain in his thumb, so I told him to get out his phone and uh, bring up the my UC Davis Health app, scroll down to Express Care, and and within five minutes he was on the phone with a uh, the emergency room physician who ended up being the head of intercollegiate athletics team physician for UC Davis. Just as it turns out, he learned a lot about the anatomical snuff box, his scaphoid bone, the poor blood supply to the bone, and the need for an x-ray to rule out a a fracture. The physician placed, uh, again, a message to his PCP, put in an order for his x-ray, and Matt was able to get his x-ray done uh, first thing in the morning. By 8.15 in the morning, x-ray was already done. Again, all completely orchestrated after hours. I think this all happened in 15 minutes between 9 and 9.15 p.m. So, Really pretty amazing after-hours care that's now available through this program.
1: Yeah, gotta love that 9 p.m. medical care. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because telemedicine was initially used as a way to overcome barriers between patients and doctors. So, for example, patients living in more rural areas. But during COVID, we used telemedicine to create a physical barrier, so to speak, between a doctor and a patient. Many EDs even set up tablets to see patients in the ED waiting room to screen with the doctor sitting in the next room.
2: I know, that's such a unique but really safe way to integrate telemedicine into the emergency department. I asked Josh how else COVID has impacted telemedicine.
0: So both the need to have it and the interest from both providers and patients and even health systems. So If you think about even at UC Davis a few years ago when we were having a flu crisis in terms of numbers that we thought were going to come in, and so we built a brick-and-mortar flu clinic, right? Uh, Many other health systems had done the same. And uh, the numbers never came. But even building that brick-and-mortar clinic, you you just think of the risk for the, the provider potentially getting exposed and then being out of work, et cetera. And so no doubt there's need for sick patients to arrive in the hospital and be treated, But what about all the mild symptomatic? What about all the asymptomatic? What about all of that triage? Does that have to happen in person? And so COVID created both a consumer demand. I mean, we had hundreds of calls coming into our health system saying, I'm worried about this symptom or how do I get tested? I mean, a lot of clinics were closing down, access points started to close. So about 30% of all our calls right now are COVID related. Someone with a high risk exposure, someone who has mild symptoms and they're worried about that, someone with a diagnosis of COVID and then something else emerges, such as a rash or leg pain or some mild shortness of breath and trying to figure out what to do about it and how quickly to do it. What makes the telemedicine service that we've created unique is that most telemedicine services in the industry, for example, they don't offer labs, they don't offer imaging testing capabilities, but because we're in our own academic home, we have the ability to do so much more and have these wraparound services. So when a patient calls with COVID, um, ordering a test, we have a integrated triage nurse group that is able to follow that test up and then reach out to both the patient and the primary care provider if they have one. So when you think about that coordinated response to telemedicine, that's very unique, both nationally in terms of other academic models, we're kind of you know out in the forefront being able to provide services like that. But also in academics, we have a home where we're all a part of this health system. So it changes what we can and are able to do.
2: Josh, how has COVID impacted telemedicine regulation?
0: I first got involved in telemedicine when I was a fellow and was interested in it, was doing some research in it, but knew very little in terms of the regulatory space. I'd say as I've learned about it, professionally working in it, And then coming back to an academic home where there's different regulatory supports, I'd say, this is a moving target. And it's one of the reasons why I heavily recommend providers to work in academic homes or in telemedicine services that are well-established, because the regulatory model is constantly fluctuating. So for example, let's take COVID. Because of COVID issues in terms of limitations to access for care, there were a lot of state guidelines that created exemptions for state licensure. So that, for example, if you were working in some telemedicine companies, you might have only had a California license, but all of a sudden you could work in any state in the U.S. because of COVID exceptions and changes within the regulatory guidance. But even insurers like Medicare used to be very restrictive with telemedicine encounters and what was allowed and what wasn't. And they've loosened those restrictions because of COVID and because of the need to be more flexible to meet patients where they're at. COVID, suffice it to say, has dropped a lot of those barriers to allow entry for independent of payer and independent of really location. But it's a moving target, and it's a target in which our health system's potentially going to have to redirect efforts again once those regulatory guidelines potentially get reinforced back to pre-COVID times. One of the reasons that we have been so successful at UC Davis is that we have a lot of compliance and billing specialists that are helping us navigate a lot of these forces, and we have other UCs to really rely on. Within the telemedicine infrastructure, there's a lot of people at the different centers, and and we collaborate in finding solutions to these questions.
2: So we are clearly in a telemedicine boom, but is this a fad or is telemedicine here to stay?
0: I think the House of Telemedicine largely is a construct of what consumer demand is. It's like a voting process, right? Like, what, what are people expecting? And I think at this point, just like people expect that most meetings will be facilitated via Zoom, I think most people expect that they'll be able to do telemedicine as they've done it through this time. And so I don't think it will be sufficient for an insurer to say we're not offering that because consumers understand the value of it now. And so do providers, right? There have been many providers who have started working in this telemedicine express care and they were new to telemedicine and they were scared of what that would feel like or look like. And both our patients and providers have uniformly said, this is so easy. There's so much we can do in this space. Yes, there are limitations. Yes, there's restrictions that kind of we can't do everything. But there's a lot that can be done and I think that has opened up the mind and the infrastructure of the house of medicine moving forward. Josh, what
2: are some of the outcomes that we have seen that show us how telemedicine impacts our patients?
0: I'd look at it from a few different lenses. So, let's take the safety lens. I think that's an important one. So, COVID, for example, a patient with mild symptoms who turns out to have COVID after we test them in a telemedicine encounter, and it prevents the need for them to go in person and expose others. I think that's a win for all involved. Let's take the example of the patient that calls, which happens probably about 10% of the time that we've seen, where a patient actually has to be redirected to the emergency department because it's not the right setting, but we help direct traffic to the ED. We call ahead. We talk to our internal triage nurses and make sure that when they arrive, our providers know what's going on And there's been a number of situations since we've started where those referrals turn out to find things that are of great consequence, like the appendicitis, like the heart attack, like the severe pneumonia that requires hospitalization. And you would think that all patients would have this insight, but again, working in emergency medicine, as you know, we are quick to realize kind of what is the risk to this patient and are they safe to do this outside the hospital? So whenever we can, we're facilitating that outpatient care but we definitely have found cases where, had we not been there, I think that care at a minimum would have been delayed, and I don't think it would have been as efficiently managed. So I think those are great successes there. In terms of other things, just routine function, I'd say some of the highlights are, for example, helping patients navigate very basic things, referrals that didn't go through, medications that didn't go through, lab follow-up that needs to be done, but for whatever reason, they don't have a test ordered. for example, Routine types of care that they just can't access their provider for. Whenever possible, we're trying to get patients into their routine provider. But oftentimes, as you know, there's only so many appointments. And so we really represent a complementary force for our primary care workforce. And along those lines, you know, there was some anxiety as we came into the space of UC Davis, I'd say, of how would we integrate within our primary care network? Our whole goal being all along to help foster that collaboration with primary care. And what we have found is we're not having patients who are calling multiple times to reach us. Once they reach us because it's after hours or weekend coverage, they get tied back into their primary care docs. And moreover, there are patients that have just been seen in the ED or specialty care, and we help to launch them into a primary care visit and into a primary care model of care that I think we all want for our patients. When I think of the top 10 complaints, people call for fever, COVID-related symptoms, abdominal pain, vomiting, rashes, medication refills. And then, of course, there are some less common things that people call for, and, and we help whenever we can.
1: That sounds like a very intentional process. And I can see where patients really appreciate the expedited care and referrals.
2: Yeah, you and the dad that we heard from earlier had some insight, especially into the expedited part
3: my youngest must be injury prone because he had the opportunity for the sprained ankle last year to go to the emergency department and spent seven hours there for a rule out of an ankle fracture. So much nicer just to be on your couch and do it all within 15, 20 minutes uh, from the comfort of your home with your leg elevated and iced. So it was, it was a dramatic change in the, in the patient experience for sure. And as a parent, much more convenient and, uh, and very reassuring to have answers from a physician so quickly. The emergency room is, is generally full of emergencies. So when you've got low acuity things that you need checked out in a timely manner, you're saving yourself an evening of waiting. You know, certainly in the COVID era, quite safer and more reassuring to access this care virtually than having to come in to the medical center when it's not really necessary to, to do so. I just think this is transformative. I, th- I think that you know the expansion of virtual care through the pandemic and uh, being able to access unscheduled care after hours and on weekends, I think is going to open up incredible access for patients to be able to get care when they need it uh, and where they need it rather than having to do it uh, at, at the schedule of the clinics between Monday through Friday eight to five. I'm really thankful for our physicians, you know there's primary care physicians emergency room physicians, nurse practitioners, all learning how to deliver care in new and novel ways. And as a patient, you appreciate that.
1: I think we have all seen the inefficiencies of the ED. And sometimes as providers, we can feel like, okay, maybe that encounter wasn't the best use of ED resources, but it's the weekend or it's after hours or, you know, it's hard for patients to triage their own problems. So they end up in the ED. I can really see why patients appreciate a service like Express Care.
2: You know, Sarah, in the Future of Emergency Medicine podcast, we heard about patients coming in with a solid workup already started. So I asked Josh how a telemedicine program like Express Care impacts the type of patients we see in the emergency department.
0: One of the great assets of this program has been building a multi-departmental model. So we have PCN docs, family medicine docs, we have nurse practitioners, we have emergency department docs. And within the emergency department itself, we have a lot of different doctors working in that service. So I think the more doctors that work in this service line, the more people that will conceptually think of, well, how could this fit into our current practice? So for example, ways that has changed my practice, let's say the pediatric patient that I saw on Friday and the mom's really concerned and she really wants this rash to be seen again in two days, but her primary care office is closed on Sunday and she wants to know, is there any way that anyone can take a look on Sunday just to make sure it's kind of moving in the right direction? I'm really anxious about this. This is a perfect model for that type of care, right? So at the end of that visit within our own system, they have the QR code at the end of the visit They can log in if they don't already have the app. And within seconds on Sunday, she can call and feel reassured that her daughter's okay and that that follow-up on Monday or Tuesday with her routine primary care is going to work. And so I think that's one example where we can start to figure out how this works for us and our patients in a model of care that's constantly evolving. So the more feedback we get from you and other emergency providers and other providers in general, and even the community, we're going to be able to create a product that really serves the needs they have.
2: Josh, what is the ideal way in your imagination for a telemedicine program to impact an emergency department?
0: I always see it through the first lens of safety, the second lens of public health, and the third lens of efficiency. But let's start with the safety aspect. Let's start with left-without-being-treated patients. Um, Have you heard of those? Yeah. Right? We have them. Everyone has them. And every system's trying to find ways to take care of those patients, right? So you could imagine a situation in which a virtual urgent care was around to help to triage those left without being treated patients to make sure that they're safe before they leave, for example, because the workforce of the ED is just not able to get to them or they have to go for whatever reason. Think about how that evolves the care we provide, right? So I think that's one example. Public health. So COVID is front and center, right? The idea that every system needs to have this type of virtual environment so that when there is a sudden rush of COVID patients or influenza patients or the next pandemic, we have an infrastructure in place with which we can grow quickly and we can adapt to whatever our needs are. So I think that's another example. You know, Zoom, obviously the business model has greatly grown and I think forever more, people are gonna look to telemedicine to be that backbone when pandemic or when other public health emergencies potentially occur. So I think that's another one. And then efficiency. Clearly consumers are demanding this product, right? We want to create best practice and there's the tension between what consumers want and patients want and what is good for them, right? In academic models of telemedicine, we're less likely to prescribe antibiotics, for example, for things that that don't require them. Consumer may really want an antibiotic for a UTI or an ear infection. And there are current guidelines, telemedicine guidelines that help provide that practice, but there's a lot of good initial data That academic models of of this care tend to hold their clinicians more responsible when they create quality and uh, kind of guidelines. Uh, And this is kind of an advancing model even within the industry. But yeah, I think those three elements are really important.
2: Health equity is so important. Josh, how does telemedicine tip the scales of health equity?
0: I started thinking about this actually when I was a a fellow at Yale, and we created an e-consult model that helped connect FQHC to the health system, the EL health system, to have better access for cardiology and other types of specialty care. And it improved the access of many patients to get timely care they needed. The care was taking six months to get, for example. And we got that down to about a week. But we also asked patients their experience. And not all patients that had this experience felt like they were getting equitable care. They felt like they were getting second rate care and not being able to see a provider in person the way that someone else might. And so I always think about this and think, what are the barriers to patients having the right technology? What are the barriers to patients having the right knowledge or the right comfort? I can say that the barrier to cost, at least within our own system, you know, uh, Medicare and Medicaid patients are covered. And that's partly due to the fact of changing COVID guidelines. And so their out-of-pocket pay is, is very minimal. And even if they don't have insurance, I think the out-of-pocket pay currently is $79. It still is a lot lower than an ED visit or a lot of other urgent care, et cetera. But simply asking patients and making sure that we're meeting all patients where they are is an evolving space. And so I think it's a big question about how to do it but I I think we need to create as many inroads to access this as possible. That may be having technology hubs and health systems long-term so patients can use it in lieu of not having the technology themselves. And it can be just kind of having an honest conversation and looking at numbers and diversity and kind of who we're seeing and who we're not, and making sure that the model of care we're providing is really reflecting the community that we serve around us. So I think these are big questions, but I think they're important questions moving forward to make sure that we have equity in this evolving model.
1: Yeah, I have my own concerns about equity here and access. You know, the patients have to have access to a smartphone and or a computer and internet. And what about recognizing patients who might be in a dangerous situation? So somebody who's a victim of abuse or human trafficking. Then there's the issue of language barriers. Is it easy to get an interpreter? especially for some of the languages that are a little bit harder to find, like Mong, And $79 is a lot for many people. What is covered? Are all the tests covered under that? Is there a copay? What if the patient has to go to the ED afterwards? Are they going to get a second bill? These are all questions that I'm not sure we have the answers to right now, but I feel like we're going to have to figure these things out.
2: Yeah, that is really tough, Sarah. You are right. And technology can be a blessing and can be a curse. I do appreciate, though, that Josh and his team are tracking the patients that are coming and engaging in the service so that they can ensure that the patients reached represent our community at large. There is such a potential to advantage and to disadvantage groups of patients in either direction. I also wanted to hear from Josh about the physician's perspective in all of this. I have experienced it as a patient, and I personally like it for the small stuff. But what if I was the physician?
0: We have a monthly check-in where I meet with the other medical providers, and we just talk about our experiences, best practice, how to improve things, how to be more efficient, challenges. One of the things I notice a lot of providers talk about is actually how much they enjoy the connection. And I would agree with that. It's kind of an odd thing to say because you'd say, well, isn't an in-person connection always better? But how often do you get pulled away from a patient encounter when you're in the emergency department? I think you have more control in telemedicine largely about um, being in the moment in that encounter. So that's been a highlight. Um, I think some of the challenges obviously are When consumers want certain things or you realize they either have risk or they need help that can't sufficiently be done in that space and navigating that while you're alone in that space and really having to kind of advocate for the patient, that can be challenging. And then obviously the technical issues and trying to navigate some of those early on as you start to learn how to do this. It's its own practice, right? It's not something you just walk into and it just feels right and feels comfortable. So in a similar vein to kind of med school and residency, learning the science and the art comes much later in your career. I feel like I'm starting to get into more of the art of it, but that's taken some time.
2: What are some of the challenges of taking care of a patient virtually versus in person?
0: Obviously, the way the physical exam is done, and I think this is an evolving piece too. So right now within our telemedicine hub and express care, we don't have yet the capacity to measure home vitals or measure home blood sugar or listen with a stethoscope or uh, look with an otoscope, et cetera. Some other telemedicine services have products that patients can bring home, for example, and they can uh, get those ancillary pieces of information. But in lieu of that, there's just some diagnoses that you, you can't touch. So current practice says that we can't diagnose acute otitis media for clear reasons. If someone has an ear pain, as simple as that complaint is to us as physicians, that is very complex in a virtual setting. So having the patient be their own guide to helping you with the exam, some areas are just difficult, a rash on the back or something that, you know, just becomes challenging And then obviously just making sure, you know, you can control your own HIPAA-related compliance and being in a room and having a secure space so you know no one else is listening. It's sometimes hard to know who's on that other end. And so sometimes their timely need for care, they might have a proxy or someone that wants that care or wants something. And so navigating some of that in a virtual space and not having those more tangible pieces of information can be tough. Looking at cases where you might have just concerns about patients or families, et cetera, um, how to figure that out in this space, it happens so infrequently. But if it does, how do you navigate that, right? I mean, I think those are some of the really challenging questions that it takes time to figure out. And then I'd say we're flexible in figuring out the demands and the needs of our system. So just take COVID testing. COVID testing changes based on the time of day, based on who's following that up, based on holidays versus not holiday coverage. So. I'm heavily kind of monitoring these changes in our system to make sure that our providers are able to provide the correct service to patients, because that is is such a moving piece.
2: Okay, what about the liability for physicians caring for patients without being able to actually lay hands on them?
0: I have seen personally the anxieties of managing patients and not knowing where this lies, I'd say I've been doing it long enough to know what that comfort space is, and that is a lot of the conversation I have with providers of kind of what feels right in this space and what doesn't. I think at a minimum, it's being very honest and trying to get ancillary uh, personnel involved, patients like in their families, that the families are willing to be a part of that conversation to make sure that there's more people that understand kind of the next steps in patient care, especially for more vulnerable patients. I think that's really important. The other thing I think that we've done is enhancing connections of care. So For all our patients that we see that we send to the emergency department, we personally call and we have created very strict guidelines for when one would do a welfare check or when one would call 911 on on a patient's behalf, for example. A high-risk video visit that you're unable to connect to a patient is akin to a patient that left without being treated and had a positive troponin, for example, and you can't get a hold of them. So it takes some time to rethink about what your limitations are and being able to uh, diagnose things. So there are kind of some issues that are just no-goes in this environment. Someone with abdominal pain, unless it's a chronic abdominal pain and they always have it and they were just seen in their PCP and they're just having some mild nausea and they're without nausea meds, that's one thing. But a 30-year-old that calls in who says, I have lower abdominal pain, they're getting sent to the emergency department every time, right? or at least recommended to. So I think there's some clear guidance in which it's so obvious that all providers are really doing the same thing and encouraged to do the same thing, that that creates a lot of protection. We've created our own internal protocol of expectations for our providers, and our providers have really helped create that based on our own practice, but also on just kind of industry standards of what's expected. But yeah, that is absolutely a challenging piece. And every time you can't lay hands on a patient, it's one of the challenges we face.
3: Pulse check.
1: If done right, telemedicine can be a way to improve patient safety, public health, and efficiency.
2: Safety. We can use telemedicine to check up on left-without-being-seen patients, follow up from the ED, and provide care to those who don't need the full resources of the emergency department.
1: Public health. Telemedicine is a way to expand quickly to the needs of less acute patients in the middle of a pandemic or other disaster and keep our physicians safe. If the infrastructure is there in normal times, then you can use it efficiently in a crisis.
2: Efficiency. When you approach telemedicine with guidelines and intention, you can provide great care that meets the needs of your patients and respects their time. You know, Julia, it's interesting
1: because other service industries have embraced digital platforms as a way to reach people way better than we have in medicine. We have a fairly bulky, slow system that we are beholden to, and we have a history of relying on human contact and the tools we have around us to reach our patients. Traditionally, our patients come to us, not the other way around. It seems like we've been a little slow in embracing virtual technology.
2: You know, if there is an advantage, one advantage to COVID is the leap forward we have made for ourselves and our patients in this area. Telemedicine done right is a powerful tool in our toolbox to build the future of emergency medicine.
1: Yeah, I think we miss an opportunity to grow as a specialty if we think that telemedicine is for other specialties but not us. If we engage thoughtfully, as Josh did, with protocols, guidelines, resources for patients, resources for providers, warm handoffs, and get the needed tests, this can be a new future
2: aspect of emergency medicine. We want to hear from you. How do you think telemedicine can integrate in emergency medicine? Let us know at Pulse Podcast. And share Pulse Podcast with your colleagues and rate us on iTunes. Thank you to our department for taking on something like this so intentionally. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for doing your own kind of telemedicine and fixing our tech issues while remote recording. And you won't want to miss
1: next month's episode as we continue to explore telemedicine. We speak with a serious telehealth guru, Dr. Jim Marson, who was helping emergency medicine docs take care of sick kiddos using telemedicine even before it was cool.
2: See you next month.